Good evening, everyone. So good to see all of you here this evening. I realize that there are a number of places that you could be, a number of things that you could be doing, but you have chosen that better part to come and, and to be here tonight. And we want to welcome you and let you know how much we appreciate the encouragement that you bring to us for uh, coming to be with us tonight. I hope that the things that we'll say tonight will be beneficial to you and that you'll be able to walk away. Maybe use some of these things. If you are already, already practicing them, maybe you'll be able to use some of these things in your teaching of other people, and that's what we're desiring that would happen, that you'd be able to communicate these same things uh, to others. Now, as it has already been said, we're going to be talking tonight about the problem of sexual immodesty. Tomorrow morning, we're going to be talking about uh, the subject of fornication, particularly with regard to, uh, there's going to be particular emphasis on some of the things that are being taught in the world today that are not true, and yet we're going to talk about the sinfulness of, fornic- uh, of uh, fornication, and hopefully that will be uh, beneficial to you as well. I think all of you will agree with me. I don't think there would be any successful contradiction to this at all, that we live in a world that is saturated with moral filth, and our challenge is to live in the world without actually becoming a part of the world, Uh, to not be conformed to the image of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds into the image of Jesus Christ. So it thus becomes uh, incumbent upon those of us, especially parents and and grandparents, Bible class teachers, preachers, and even elders, to instill within our children some of the early, uh, from an early age, the biblical principles that will anchor them to the rock of ages. That's what we're trying to do. I want to talk with you tonight about this subject and about some principles that should govern our minds on this very sensitive subject. But before I do, I want to kind of set some parameters, if I might. I realize, first of all, that this subject can be a very emotional, sometimes a a very volatile subject. Nevertheless, I I do believe that we need to talk about the subject. I I don't think it's a subject that we uh, dare let go and just ignore. So even though it may be challenging emotionally to us, and even though uh, it may, as some people say, step on someone's toes, these are the kinds of things we still need to study because people in many ways have not even considered it very much. I am afraid, as really I've already said in this series and would say it again before the series is over, that uh, we're selling our souls in order to fit into the world. We're walking to the drumbeat of the world, I fear. On Wednesday evening, we talked about how that the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God are very different. And we're listening to culture. We're listening to uh, pop culture way too much in the things that we do and some of the decisions that we make. I realize also that there may very well be uh, within this audience tonight some people who do not agree with what I say, especially everything I'm going to say. I want 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 to ask you to do two things with me, three things really. I want you first of all to receive it in the spirit in which it is given. I want you to know that I love you, I love the souls of men, and I'm going to say these things in as kind a way as I know how, uh, but I care for you. And I want you to know that it's coming from that kind of a spirit. I have no axe to grind. It's just I believe that the Bible teaches certain things with regard to this subject. And I want to share those with you. And if you disagree with me, then I would just challenge you to think very seriously about what I have to say. I want you in the second place to give it a fair consideration and not just brush it aside. But what, because what God says about the subject of, mo- of modesty is one of these days going to judge us when we stand before Him. So this becomes a very serious subject. And so we need to realize 
the seriousness of the matter that you, your children, and your grandchildren will stand before God in the last day and give an account of how they have dressed or not dressed, as the case may be, and I want to encourage you to get ready for that day. I want you to be ready when Christ is going to come again. Now, in the very beginning, I want to make three clarifications. I want to say, I want to tell you that I understand that there is more than one kind of immodesty. We can be immodest in our speech. We can be immodest in our behavior as well as in our dress. We can be ostentatiously immodest as well as sexually provocative. But while other forms of immodesty warrant concern and need to be addressed... My concern in this lesson is what I perceive to be of greater problem among God's people, and that is sexual immodesty. I understand that modesty is primarily a matter of the heart. As in everything we said this week, I want to say that it all begins in the heart, what kind of heart that we have. That's where modesty begins, where immodesty begins for that matter. It is a matter of the heart primarily and then of the actions and dress and these other things later. And then I want you to understand that sexual modesty is not just a woman's subject. Today, this very day, I received a a screenshot of a Facebook post from a young man that I know very, very, very well, and he still has a long way to mature, But this young man put up uh, what I'm going to say is a gross image on Facebook for other people to see. It was immodest. To say the very least, there's a lot of things wrong with that, and I don't want to go in that direction because if I do, I'll stay there. But it's not just a woman's problem. It is a man's problem as well. But with that said, I, I want to talk with you about the problem of sexual immodesty, and we're going to be talking more, I guess, about sexual immodesty in women than, than in men, but uh, that'll be just the case. Let's begin by talking about some basic concepts of sexual modesty, and I'm going to say that we're going to explore these a little bit further later in the lesson, but I just do need to kind of uh, get this out of the way. Our, our nakedness is not to be uncovered except by our mate. That's the first principle I, I want to lay down. Our nakedness is not to be uncovered except by our mate. In the Old Testament, the phrase uncovering the nakedness, which you're going to find several times in the Old Testament, was a euphemism for sexual intercourse, and it was forbidden to anyone other than a person's spouse. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 6 through 20, rather long passage there, talking about uh, this this idea of uncovering the nakedness. But the very expression, uncovering the nakedness of anyone except one spouse, implies the normal state of things is for our nakedness to be covered. That implication is there. The normal state of things should be that our nakedness is covered. Now, there are two separate sins here as far as I am concerned. It was a sin to uncover someone else's nakedness. That is, someone other than your spouse. But also, it was a sin to uncover one's own nakedness to someone other than your spouse. Your spouse is the only one that has the right to see certain parts of your body. No one else has that right. Now, a principal passage should be a considera- uh, under consideration. should be a passage in Proverbs chapter 5. And if you want to turn there with me, we're going to read a few verses. 
And then what I'm going to do is just kind of ask you to uh, uh, keep your mark in your Bible there because we're going to come back uh, a little bit later to Proverbs chapter 7. But we're going to look at Proverbs chapter 5 for right now. Proverbs chapter 5, beginning in verse 15, says, Drink water from your own cistern. This is not talking about drinking water, by the way. But he says, Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? There are two things here now. Let her breast satisfy you and not the breast of someone else. Let her breast satisfy you. And then it says, let her breast satisfy you and only you, I'm going to argue, and even by visual hint. You do not want to even hint to giving someone else a look at that part or that private part of your body. Another principle I want to lay down is that men are more visually stimulated than, than women. Compared to women, men are more aroused by visual stimuli. And this is why pornography is primarily more a temptation for men than it is women. As we stated last night, it's a problem with women, one out of every five. But it's not near the problem with women that it is with men. And it's because men are more quickly aroused by any stimuli, particularly visual stimuli. And that is why a woman's dress, their visual appearance, and especially your modesty is so critically important. In fact, compared to women, men are more quickly aroused by any stimuli. If women are crockpots, men are microwaves. Ladies, it doesn't take much visually to arouse men's sexual interest in you. And I think most, if not all, women understand this, or at least should. Another thing that we're going to talk again a good bit more about in just a little bit is that sensuality destroys. It's listed among the deeds of the flesh, and that we'll talk more about. But then the Christian's clothing also should be consistent with godliness. Again, we're going to delve more into this in a little bit, but let's look at 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10. 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10. Here the passage says, the Apostle Paul says, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing. And then in verse 10, As is proper women making a claim to godliness. The Bible speaks of those who have eyes full of adultery and who never cease from sin. Yes, it is true. There are men who have dirty minds. There are men who cannot think anything else but a dirty thought. He can't look at any woman without even thinking sexual thoughts. And nothing you do, nothing any woman can do, can stop that kind of a mind from thinking those kinds of thoughts. She could wear a toe sack a very loose toe sack, and some men, if you even know what a toe sack is, uh, but, but some men would, would lust those who have dirty minds. But I'm telling you, that's not the man I'm concerned about tonight. I, I'm not concerned about that man. We're concerned about the effect that your dress has on godly men, has on men who are trying to do their best to maintain purity of mind. It is extremely naive for a woman to dress sexually and then simply write off anyone who thinks sexual thoughts as having a dirty mind. I can't tell you the number of times 
as an elder and as a preacher before I was ever an elder, how that we would get to talking about this subject with some, with some women and they would just say, well, they just have a dirty mind. That's all. And what they're doing is they're putting their responsibility off on someone else. Well, again, truly, there are some people who have dirty minds. I'm going to acknowledge that. But I also want to suggest that modesty is important for those who are men of godly mind, who are trying to do the right thing. Sexual dress produces sexual thoughts in any man's mind, even the most godly, and that is the man we're primarily concerned about tonight. So in this subject, we need to begin by defining some relevant words. And that first word, of course, is modesty that comes up in in several different passages. It means the opposite of of modest, immodest uh, rather, means the opposite of modest. Having an immoderate estimate of oneself, having a forward nature having disregard for decencies of behavior or dress. And this is what the Apostle Paul is talking about here in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 9 when he says, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves in modest or proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly uh, garments. And so uh, we need to uh, see and understand that what this passage is teaching, it is teaching primarily in this passage against the idea of ostentation, but because the definition of this word, it is also involving other things as well. Another word that is found in the Bible is that is very important for us to understand is the word sensual. It means relating to the physical senses, especially in arousing sexual gratification, lacking in moral discipline or restraint, lascivious, licentious, and promiscuous. By the way, I, I, I am uh, really saddened, I guess is the best way to put it, that some words have fallen out of vogue in the English language. We're going to talk about one of the, uh, another one tomorrow morning. But the word lasciviousness, it is a word that's fallen out of vogue in modern translations, and it shouldn't. Because there's something about the sound of that word that actually tastes bad as it rolls off your lips. Lasciviousness. It just sounds bad, doesn't it? That's talking about the sensual nature of man, being driven by what he feels. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, And Paul went on that list of the deeds of the flesh to say that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Are you listening to me? Sensuality, lasciviousness, those who practice such things and appeal to those things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I I can't say it any plainer and I can't make it any more serious than this passage does. Another word that is important to this discussion is the word obscene which means offensive or disgusting disgusting by accepted standards of morality and decency, suggesting impure ideas. This passage, uh, this word is used like in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8. It's really uh, the opposite of purity here, suggesting impure ideas. When it says, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure... Whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence or anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. So if pure thoughts are what you are to dwell on, then impure thoughts, according to this definition, is obscene. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 3, the Bible says, And everyone who has this hope fixed on him 
purifies himself just as he is pure. So there's the obligation then to purify ourselves. Now my next term is a term that is not used in Scripture, but its principle or its concept certainly is, and that is the word meretricious. It's not something I use. I don't use this term in my vocabulary very often at all when I'm preaching on the subject maybe, but uh, on, in everyday conversation I seldom ever use it. But it means attracting attention in a vulgar manner, pertaining to or resembling a prostitute, tastelessly and shamefully displaying the body, advertising for sex. And here's where Proverbs chapter 7 comes in because Proverbs 7 says, For behold, a woman comes to meet him dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. So this is a meretricious woman. This is a woman who is vulgar in her approach to things, vulgar even in her dress, dressing as a harlot. I've seen women come to worship services where her dress more resembles a harlot than it does actually resemble a woman of of godliness. And that's a shame, but it happens. That is exactly a shame, but it happens. I've known of men, there have been times even at South Coleman, and we've dealt with this, there have been times when the men who before COVID passed the uh, Lord's Supper, uh, they would get to a certain bench and they'd have to hand the Lord's Supper down like this right here with their heads held high lest they see something and, and they lose their attention on the Lord's Supper. And that's shameful. It's just as shameful as it can be. Another word, though it's not found in the Scripture, the principle certainly is, we've already talked about it a bit, and that's ostentatious, which means uh, a pretentious display meant to impress others uh, flaunting wealth or physical beauty for the purpose of impressing. I, I know women like this, women who claim to be godly women, who think more about their physical appearance and how they dress than just about anything else. And, the, and it's like they flaunt that, thinking that it doesn't affect anybody else. But when Paul in 1 Timothy 2, verse 9 and 10 says, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. What he's saying here is that a, a, a woman, be she young or old, should never depend upon her physical beauty in order to be able to uh, uh, be what God wants her to be or to for her appeal. Her appeal should be the uh, inner man of the heart. I've quit trying to use the word attractive uh, for very uh, re- various reasons that I'll talk about uh, in a little bit. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 3 said, Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. That's what God wants. Don't let it depend upon your dress. Don't let uh, your appeal particularly to your husband, depend on the kind of dress you wear. You're looking for someone who has godly character and she, dis- she dresses that way. Another word is the word unbecoming. This word mean- means beneath the standard implied by one's character or position. A uh, synonym to that is something that is improper or inappropriate or not fitting. Uh, Paul, in talking about the uh, Gentile world in Genesis chapter 1, says that God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. They're, they're not fitting. They don't meet up to the standard, Romans 1 and verse 28. 
In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 4, Paul said, There must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather the giving of thanks. So there are some things that just don't meet up to the standard. And so Paul comes along and then in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 10 and talking about a woman's dress says that her dress should uh, reflect her good works and befit women making a claim to godliness. Her character and her dress are going to align up. And really, it always does. Character and dress always lines up. And what that means is, is if a, if a young lady is dressing immodestly, then she's displaying a part of her character, most of the time a part of her character that she'd rather have hidden but she's displaying it by what she is wearing. Then there's the word indecent. This is the final word in this list of words. Uh, It means not conforming to recognized standards of propriety. Synonyms are things like indelicate, unseemly, and disgraceful. In Romans 12 and verse 17, Paul said, Never pay back for evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. And so what this passage is telling us is a general principle, I think, here that he's using specifically in a context. But this general principle is we need to respect what is right in the sight of all people. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 was talking about um, the matter of transporting money from the Grecian world to the needy saints in Jerusalem. And he had to contemplate, he had to think about how he was going to do that. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 16 tells us how he would do that. He decided that when he went to these churches to pick up uh, this money to carry to Jerusalem, that in order to make things respectable in the sight of all men, what he would do is he would get them to appoint their own messengers to go with him and carry that money. Some of them may very well be listed in uh, the first few verses of Acts chapter 20, Uh, when you read those men listed who are going along with Paul. Paul said of himself in chapter 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 21, We have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. So you know that you've got the Lord watching you, no matter what you're doing or where you are, even if you think you're in private. But what he says here, we not only want to make sure that we're doing things honorable in the sight of the Lord, but we want to go a step beyond that. We want to make sure that we are doing what is honorable in the sight of all men as as well. Peter said in 1 Peter 2 and verse 12, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. What you want is those people who are on the outside to see the kind of person you are even by your dress. And the implication here is that one's conduct might even be limited by the scruples of other people. And that may even be a very good thing. So having these definitions before us, What I want to do is I want to go back and look at some of these biblical principles and maybe add another one or two to it to help us in understanding the subject tonight of how we should dress. I want to go back to the very first one I mentioned just a few moments ago, that it's shameful to expose one's nakedness. You know, when Adam and Eve sinned, 
They lost their childlike innocence, and clothing was needed to cover up their nakedness. I'm in Genesis chapter 3, if you want to follow along with me, and I want you to notice some of the things that are said there, some things that I think we need to pay attention to. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 7, after they had sinned, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Let me just stop right there for a moment. They hid themselves. Have you ever asked yourself why they hid themselves? Has that ever dawned on you? Why did they hide themselves? Let's let the text answer the question. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard you, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Now we know why he hid themselves. They hid themselves because they were naked. Well, why did they hide themselves? Because they were naked. Let's go. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Why? to cover what was shameful for them to expose. And notice, if you will, that the Lord put more clothes on them than they put on themselves. And we dare not be dismissive of that. It's shameful to expose or draw attention to the private parts of the body. Think with me, turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 47 for just a moment. Isaiah chapter 47. In Isaiah 47 and verse 1, Isaiah said, Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no longer be called tender and delicate. You see, when they were God's people, they were tender and delicate, but not anymore. Take the millstones and grind meal. Remove the veil. Strip off the skirt. Uncover the leg. Cross the rivers. The word leg here would as easily be rendered thighs. If you want a definition of modesty, here it is. Do not uncover the thigh. I have no idea why young men and women today, whatever they do, whether it's cheerleading or men playing basketball or whatever you do, I have no idea why you would uh, do that and uncover the thigh. This is what the Bible teaches, defining modesty for you. Your nakedness, he says, will not be uncovered. Your shame will also be exposed because of what they've done. They've uncovered the thigh and they were going to be exposed. In Luke chapter 8, there's another really interesting statement that is made there. Jesus is in the country of the Gerasenes, just opposite Galilee. And when he came out into the land, he was met by a woman from the city who was possessed with demons. Now let's just get this here. Uh, This man was possessed by demons and he did not put on any clothing for a long time and was not living in a house but in the tombs. So he was going around in clothes. The people went out to see what had happened and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they became frightened. If that doesn't say that when you're in your right mind, you're clothed, I don't know what else does. That's pretty simple to me. In Revelation chapter 3, and verse 17 and 18, Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, 
I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. Again, my whole point is that it is shameful for one to expose their nakedness. And that's shameful in the eyes of God. Now, a lot of people in this world may not, uh, may not feel that way about it. But God does. Because we know what God says. Again, another principle is that sensuality destroys. And it destroys both you and other people that are around you. You remember how that we read on Wednesday night from Galatians chapter 5 and verse 19, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality. You remember that? He said uh, later on in that text in verse 21 that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's that word that we defined just a few moments ago as lasciviousness and licentious. It's the Greek word eselgia, meaning lustfulness, lacking in self-restraint, promiscuous, and unprincipled in sexual matters. In the book of Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 19 Paul was talking about how that the Corinthians should no longer walk as the Gentiles walked. And he said, they have become callous, as he's describing them. He says, they have become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity and greediness. Peter in 1 Peter 4 and verse 3 told those Christians, time has already passed for you to have engaged in that kind of activity, in the activity of sensuality. And Paul in Romans 13, 14 says, And put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the lust in regard to its flesh. In, in regard to its flesh. It's lust. No uh, provision for flesh in regard to its lust. I'll get it out in just a minute correctly. Let's look at a few passages. Let's look at Matthew chapter 5 for a moment. Matthew chapter 5 and read with me verse 27 beginning. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 27. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. We know that's a problem. We talked about that problem both Wednesday night and last night. And we know what Jesus said about it. He continued to say, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out. Here's a problem of lust. You got a problem with lust? This, he's not telling you to uh, maim your body. This is a hyperbolic expression to get across a point. He's saying you do whatever you have to do. Do whatever you have to do in order to not be guilty of lust because lust leads to adultery. Now there, there's a twofold responsibility here. There is the responsibility that is on the man. The man is responsible to guard his mind from impurity. Whatever is pure, Paul said in the book of Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8, whatever is pure, he is to let his mind dwell on those things, to think on those things. Yes, there are people who have eyes full of adultery that never cease to sin. But as a godly man, we've got to do everything we can, men, to maintain that purity of mind without which we will never see God. Matthew 5 and verse 8. But if that's true, that a man must maintain his purity, it is also equally true that a woman is to dress in such a way as to help prevent that stare or that second look. In the book of Matthew chapter 18, in verse 7, Jesus said, Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. 
And so it is imperative upon us, it's, in, it's uh, uh, contingent upon us to make sure that we do not cause anybody else to stumble in anything we do, in what we say, how we live, uh, what we do, where we go. We're not to cause somebody else to stumble. Don't be the cause of somebody else stumbling. But if there's not an application here, particularly for ladies in their dress, I don't know where you would turn to. Don't cause somebody else to stumble. When you wear something that's too low, when you're showing cleavage, when you're wearing something that is too tight, when you're wearing something that is too thin, when you're wearing something that is too short, and there are probably several other ways that I could describe it, you're, you're immodest. And you don't need to allow that to happen. And not only is a man wrong for thinking towards you the way he's thinking, but you're wrong for causing him to think that way by what you dress. There are a number of examples of mutual guilt in the scriptures. I'm thinking of Genesis chapter 9 where Noah and Ham got into that problem and, and Noah was guilty because he was drunk and he let himself be in a position where he shouldn't have been. Ham was guilty for doing what he did. In Genesis 38, Judah and Tamar... Uh, Judah was uh, wrong for seeking a prostitute. Tamar was wrong for dressing like one. In 2 Samuel 11, uh, you got David and Bathsheba. People have tried to lay all that fault on David for where he was and, and what he was doing. And it's kind of interesting. Once you go there, and I've, I've been there, and I've, I've uh, seen the old city of David. When David was in his palace, it would have been very, very easy to look down and see at the uh, uh, below him there any woman who would be bathing on the top of a roof. It, it, was just, it would be just very easy for her to see that, for him to see that. But I also know that it's very easy for a woman to put herself in a place where she can be seen and dressing in a fashion that people will be seen and attracted to her. And I know that if she was anywhere near where I was, when I looked down from the palace of David, if you're down there and you're looking up, you know that anybody up there can see you. You know it. So I'm telling you, it wasn't just David. It wasn't just Bathsheba. It was both of them. Involved in that. In Proverbs chapter 7, and we'll look to that in just a minute, there's a naive youth uh, described there and a seductive temptress. Uh, the youth is at fault. The temptress is at fault. You've got mutual responsibility. So again, what I'm saying is, you can't blame it all on uh, dirty old men thinking bad thoughts. Because if you cause those, you're at fault as, as well. And God knows you are. There's an all-seeing eye watching you. And whether you intend that to happen or not, I'm not saying you intend for it to happen. But even if you don't intend for it to happen, it happens and you're culpable. Well, I want to suggest also that as we talked about a while ago, the Christian's clothes must be consistent with their godliness. Now we want to look at Proverbs chapter 7. In Proverbs 7, the woman's attire here fit her impudent and, and lustful intent. I want you to look at verse 1. We won't read it all for sake of time, but just uh, read it all at home if you would. But look at verse 1. Wise man said, My son, keep my words and treasure my commandments within you. Son, please listen to what I say. Listen to what I say. They are important that they may keep you from an adulteress. Any man over a period of time 
is going to be confronted by someone who has uh, an agenda different than what you might ever even think. And I'll tell you something. It's pretty naive. Men are pretty naive, to be honest with you. Men are pretty naive. And in fact, I've told my wife about, I tell my wife about everything that happens like this. And I've told my wife about certain situations, and here I am just as gullible as it could be. And, and she would say, Jim, do you not know that woman's coming on to you? I had no idea. You know, I've always thought I had a face that was so ugly that only a mother and somebody like Paige could love, you know. Uh, and, and that would never happen. But men are naive that way. I, I will admit to it. I, I've been naive that way. You've got to be careful. And the wise man here says, I want you to keep my words so that you do not fall prey to her because there are women out there who are like that, okay? And behold, a woman, verse 10, behold, a woman comes to meet him dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. I have a friend of mine uh, that had an occasion one time. He was out west and he was riding on a bus and several hours to go to his destination and there was at a stop a young man and a young woman um, were there he kissed her goodbye and she got on the bus and the only place she could sit was right beside him so she sat beside him dressed casually nicely and so as they've got an hour or two to travel you're not going to sit there if you're like me or him. You're going to engage somebody in conversation. You never know where what worthwhile conversation you can have with someone and how you might be able even to uh, teach them. And uh, she asked him what he did. Well, I'm a gospel preacher, uh, and I'm, I'm going to preach over here. And he told her where the city was he was going. And he said, what do you do? And she said, I'm a professional prostitute. And she worked at one of those ranches out there. And he said, but pardon me. He said, your husband, uh, this man was out here and you, he kissed you goodbye. And yeah, he knows. He says, this is just, uh, he knows it's just a job. And so she was going to ply her trade. And as the conversation went on, he, he asked her, he said, will you tell me what you think Proverbs 7 means when it talks about the dress of a prostitute? And it's amazing, her answer. The first thing out of her mouth was, it's not what you think. It's not what you think. He said, the, the gaudy dress that you see Hollywood portray it on the street corners, you know, that may be, there may be that. Uh, you know, where they, you know, the, the bright red lipstick, the, you know, very short dresses, very low cut dresses, that kind of thing. That's there. That's real. But that's not, that's not when I think of dressed as a harlot. She says, she, and she talked about how that things could be just barely revealing that the human body is really kind of not very attractive when you see it without anything on. But what happens is, is that people reveal very little of it and create the sense of seduction. Whether it's something that is too tight, too, uh, uh, too low, too, uh, too short. And sometimes she says, there, there are some clients I have that want me to dress in business attire. 
And so a lot of the times it was portrayed by that conversation that it may not necessarily be what you wear as to how you wear it. So it's both of them. You see, it's both what you wear and how you wear it. And that's how she defined the dress of a harlot. And there was a lot more to that conversation. But in verse uh, uh, 13, uh, verse 10, And behold, the woman comes out to him dressed as a harlot and cunning of of heart. Verse 13, So she seizes him and kisses him. So here is the, the brazen. Here is the bold part of her. With her many, verse 21, With her many persuasions, she entices him with her flattering lips. She seduces him. So this seductress had an immodest heart that expressed itself in immodest words and then in immodest action and she wore an immodest dress. That's what this passage is talking about. And we sometimes see this in our assemblies. Then let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9 and 10 again. And I'll try to go through this rather quickly. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Now, you're going to run into some, a little bit of confusion with regard to differences in translations because of the way that these words very nearly resemble one another as they are described. I'm using the New American Standard. The word adorn comes from a Greek word that simply means orderly, well arranged, uh, as in an ornament. It's the word from which we, it's word cosmos, which by the very sound of it tells you that we look at the uh, cosmology, uh, we think about cosmetology, uh, cosmetic, all, all of this used there, the idea of adorn. It's used several times in Scripture, the thoughts of the prophets who adorn the monuments of the righteous in uh, Matthew 23 and verse 29. Made them look better. Luke 21 and verse 5, uh, it was uh, describing the temple that was adorned with beautiful stones. And in Titus chapter 2 and verse 10, it's used to talk about the behavior of uh, young men as they adorn the doctrine of Christ, as they as they live out what Christ has taught them, they make the doctrine of Christ look more beautiful. But note that the adornment is not condemned, but it's enjoined actually, and that adornment involves orderliness. Proverbs 31 and verse 22. She makes coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Everything she does is going to be orderly and well arranged. That's the way that clothing should be described. Here's another one of my judgments, if you may pardon me expressing it. I believe that we have lost the battle of casuality in our worship. And I, I don't always know how to react to that. Because I grew up in a period in time in which anybody who served up at front wore at least a shirt and a tie, and most of the time a coat to go along with it. That's not our culture today. And we went through a time when anything less than that was considered irreverent by older people. I honestly do not believe that that is the case anymore. I believe that casuality is just something that Everybody, you know, I used to say you need to dress to go to worship just like you dress to go to a funeral. People don't dress to go to funerals anymore. Don't wear a coat and tie anymore. Not many. So, okay, I'm I'm okay with casuality. Okay, 
I've learned, even though I'm old and set in my ways, I've learned to embrace that. You can kind of laugh at me if you want to. I'll give you permission. But what I can't abide by is people who dress sloppily and slovenly. Because I believe that there is a difference between dressing casually and dressing sloppily. We need to remember that we are coming before Almighty God to worship. And we ought to dress in such a way as we are worshiping God. We ought to dress reverently. I'm not saying that you can't come before God casual, okay? That's not what I'm saying. I'd rather it be some other way, but it's not. This is the way we're going to have to live these days. But I'm just saying that don't do it sloppily. Don't express irreverence by your dress. Slovenly unkept appearance is nowhere praised in the Scriptures and certainly not of women. You dress with proper clothing. The word proper there is clothing that is becoming, uh, particularly with the uh, regard to her station as a Christian. It denotes being orderly, well-arranged, decent, modest. The word that's applied to clothing here is used with reference to the behavior of an elder in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2. He's supposed to be respectful or respectable. That means his life is in order. He's got his ducks in a row in his life. That's important. The word modestly in the New American Standard is from the Greek word that means with propriety and reverence and respect. There's another uh, old term that is used here that I really like, and it's shamefacedness or shamefastness. And I particularly like that word shamefastness because it reflects literally the definition of that word in the original language, which means that there is a sense of shame rooted deep within the character. We, have a, we should have a sense of shame rooted deep within our character so that if we expose a part of our body that no one else has a right to see other than our spouse, it brings us to shame. But since it's humility and shame that prompt the wearing of, immo- of modest apparel, it's no wonder immodesty is so widespread in our age. Because today... I don't know very, uh, very many women, especially in the world, that even have a, the ability to be able to blush anymore. That's, that's gone. People are so callous that there is no more blushing. Blushing is almost a lost ability. The word discreetly is used here, and it's from a word that means soundness of mind, self-control, sobriety, and discretion. Our English word discreet means being careful and prudent in one's speech or actions, especially so as to avoid giving offense or attracting attention. Discreetness, in its application in this passage, I believe, produces a balance in one's dress. Particularly, he's talking about between ostentation and, and, and maybe something else on the other end of that spectrum. There's just some balance in that dress that you're wearing. Not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly uh, clothing. Uh, and again, uh, this is the idea. If It's not that uh, you're not to adorn yourself in clothing. That's not the point. But he's saying here, you don't be ostentatious about it. What is condemned is that idea there. In the book of 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter said in verse 1 again, In the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses, kind of like 1 Timothy 2, 
but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. You contrast the gentle and quiet spirit with the bold, assertive impudence uh, that's fashionable, uh, fashionable among many women today. Arrogant pushiness seems to be the stock and trade of the feminist movement. The secret of a woman's beauty, though, real beauty, is not in what she wears. The secret of a woman's real beauty is in what's inside her. There is a proverb that is at once pointed and humorous. In Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 22, don't ever think that God doesn't have a sense of humor. When he says, as a ring of gold in a, sni- a, sw- a swine snout, as a ring of gold in a swine snout, so is a beautiful woman who lacks discretion. Uh, when I grew up, across the road was my uncle's hog farm. Okay, so I, I, I did a lot of uh, uh, working with hogs. And if you want to keep a hog in a page wire fence, there's only one way to do it. You have got to take these metal rings and uh, an apparatus similar to pliers that will hold that metal ring, and you've got to put that hog's nose in some type of a vice, that hog's head in some type of a vice, and then you've got to put that ring there. You've got to mash it where it will penetrate his nostrils. And so that when he goes to rooting, because a hog's going to root, it'll hurt. And sometimes, for some hogs... They're so obstinate, you can't, you can't just put one ring there. You've got to put two or three rings in that nose. Now, can you just imagine anybody taking a ring of gold, such as what your wife's wedding ring is made out of, you take a ring of gold and put it in a swine's snout. Can you imagine that? That's just about as out of place as anything can be. It's just unfitting. Nothing you can imagine would be worse than putting a... Nobody's going to have such a pet pig. They're going to put a ring of gold in that pig's nose. It just ain't going to happen. He says, so is a beautiful woman who lacks discretion. If one is out of place, the other is too. I know some. You probably do too. A woman beautiful in form and appearance, but she has no clue as to how to behave and behave in a godly way. I want to close by looking at this thought here. When you consider the question of uh, modesty, modesty, uh, in modesty, character and conduct are interrelated. Apparel is both a thermometer and a thermostat to our character. And what I mean by that, it's, it not only helps you indicate what one's character is or determine what one's character is, it also helps determine what it will become. So it's both a thermometer and a thermostat. So modesty and immodesty are primarily characteristics of the person and really only secondarily characteristics of, uh, of the clothing. Now, this doesn't mean that uh, any clothing uh, a, a modest of heart person wears is okay. It, it, it's not what it means. But it does mean that the inwardly modest person will express that outwardly in decisions made about clothing. No specific dress code will be needed for a modest person, for this is going to flow from within. 
So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Consistent godliness rejects immodesty in all three, in character, in conduct, and in dress. Our outer appearance should reflect the inward modesty, purity, fidelity, and chastity. And it has to be seen in our dress. Thank you again for listening to what I've said tonight. I really appreciate it. And again, I hope that you'll take this lesson in the spirit in which it is given because one of these days we're going to be judged by what God says about the matter of dress. There may be uh, someone here uh, tonight who's never obeyed the gospel. I realize that this uh, lesson is not one designed to uh, bring a person to know just exactly what to do to be saved. But I think everybody within the sound of my voice tonight, you've heard these lessons over and over and over again about what to do to become a Christian. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, we want to encourage you to be impressed with the fact that we want to follow the Bible. We want to do what God tells us to do more than anything else in the world. So we can go home when this this world is uh, on fire. Uh, I don't want to be here. I want to be with Jesus Christ. I want to be in heaven. And it's worth any sacrifice that you have to make, including sacrifice of the type of dress that you wear in order to be able to go to heaven when you die. And so uh, if there's any way we can help you in obey the gospel, whether it's to be baptized or whether it's to come back to the Lord, we want to encourage you to do it. So if you need to obey the gospel, won't you come together while we stand and sing? Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine.